Ja, met mij. Vertel. Ja. Today is a season of waiting. That was a waiting room. <clears throat> and I made you wait just a little bit. Amen. That was on purpose. But how did it go when you were waiting? Did, you, did it make you feel uncomfortable? Maybe uh, anxious or maybe annoyed, right? Because you're like, Pastor, we got lunch after this, and we need to get this show on the road, right? So we, uh, we, um, how long would you have waited? If I would have just stayed down there, would you have waited at least a little bit, right? When you're in college and the, pa the professor didn't show up, you waited five minutes, ten minutes. If they had a doctorate, you waited 15, right? You gave them that respect. But uh, if they didn't show, then you were going to go. <laughs> um, and that's why I came up when I did. I didn't want anybody to walk out. Um, <laughs> but, I, I mean, how long would you at least maybe came over and said, hey, what's going on? You know, wh what are we doing here? Would you have waited a minute? Because I waited 30 seconds maybe, and you could already feel the tension in the room. You know, maybe five minutes. We are not people that are made for waiting. We're not good at it, right? Raise your hand if you're super patient all the time and you, you love to wait on stuff, right? Um, we, we don't like waiting for our food at a restaurant. We, we, we don't like waiting to even be sat down at a restaurant. And these days with the lack of uh, help that people have, it takes a while, doesn't it? We have to wait. Um, we don't like waiting in lines at the stores, right? We check out at the checkout stand. We go to the, the, the shortest line or the self-check, whatever we can do to get out of there as fast as possible. We don't like waiting in lines. We're at a music park. We go to a roller, we ride a roller coaster. We don't like waiting for that, okay? There's a sense of anticipation with that, so there, there's reasons there. But in today's have-it-now world, 
Waiting is not what we do well. And uh, now it's Christmas time. And Christmas is a season of waiting. And we call it Advent in, in the Christian world. But it's a season of waiting. Advent for us, it, it's a time uh, of a couple things. It's a time of waiting with anticipation. Right? We, we anticipate um, maybe uh, the way that we anticipate differs on our age, right? At this time of year, like if you're a kid, you anticipate what's coming up at Christmas time. You get excited for the, for the gifts and the parties and the, the things like that. And the older you get, the, the less those things kind of go away, maybe. Maybe you, like, you anticipate great gifts every, week, every year. Um, but we have this anticipation of gathering together, and uh, maybe a gift that you plan to give to someone, you anticipate giving it to them, and what their reaction is going to be, or maybe what you might receive. And if you're a Jesus follower, um, it's an anticipation of the reason for this time, for the, the celebration of Jesus' birth. And if you're not a Jesus follower, the time of Advent still centers around the event of the birth of Jesus. Even in a secular world, this event revolves around the birth of Jesus Christ. So it's a time of anticipation. It's also a time of preparation where we, um, we prepare for family and friends to get together. I listed like 27 things that we're doing between now and Christmas Day. There's a lot of stuff going on, and it takes planning. Preparation for shopping. you got to go shopping. That's a little easier now. With uh, you could, You're probably doing some of it right now on your phone, right? You're shopping at will, but you have to prepare for that. Um, for You prepare for special events. As we saw as we drove in, there's already preparations for live nativity and the things that are going to go on, the special events here. Um, there's parties that we're planning and get-togethers that will we'll have to manage the calendar. There's some preparation that takes place there. And then, uh, you know, Advent, it just takes a lot of preparation time. And the definition of Advent is just simply... The arrival of something notable. It's the arrival of something notable. And so you can see why in, in, uh, today we celebrate that. But it's, the definition's not solely for Christmas time. Advent is not just solely a Christian word. In any red carpet event, there's an advent of a celebrity, right? Who's coming out next? Uh, a six-year-old. Um, they're excited for, their birth, for the advent of their birthday. They get going, and they, they want to know they're excited for it. So they're, they're looking for something notable, some person or event. But in our Christian culture, the notable event is, is life-changing to the extent, uh, to a great extent, because Advent was an event. It actually happened. And that's something that, um, you know, other religions, they can claim that. Uh, that things that they're the leaders of their religion, they were, they were actually born, right? So that, that's not new, but it actually happened. And because of Advent is uh, the arrival of so much more than just a baby being born. That happened for centuries. Lots of babies were born. Advent is an arrival of the most holy God coming to earth, to an earth that he created, Right? And he's going to reside with people that he created. And he came to save people that he created. That was the purpose 
of his coming. So it's a celebration and anticipation and preparation for the arrival of grace on earth and the arrival of hope and the arrival of love. In, uh, in the line of, uh, of the Hebrew people, back in the time of the Bible, the Bible was written, um, for four centuries prior to Jesus' arrival, waiting was all that the Israelite people did. All that the, the, the Hebrew people did was wait for 400 years. Because for those 400 years, God was silent. God was silent, not both audibly and through his chosen speakers. There were no, uh, for the 400 years leading up to Jesus' birth, there were no prophets sharing what God was sharing with them. There was no pillar of cloud by day and no pillar of fire by night to, to follow uh, God. There was no direction from God. There was no God-to-human interaction. Now, there was prayers, so there was human-to-God interaction, and God heard those prayers, but there was just life for 400-plus years in the midst of a silent God. And this is an important note that, that we, we hear about. And if you're um, familiar, you've been around the church at all for a little while, you, you probably know that there's a 400-year gap of silence in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to share a little bit about that today. But the important note is God was present in that 400 years. He was just silent. God was still working in those 400 years. He just was not talking and because God was silent, doesn't mean he wasn't working. We sang that today. Even when we don't feel him, he's working. Even when we don't know what's going on and we can't see up or down, he's working. And just because we can't hear him, he's still working. And it's a great reminder that even if we don't feel him, he is there. He is with us and he's working in our lives. Um, let me tell you a, a couple of things. During this silent time, of, of these 400 years, there was quite a bit going on in the world, right? Life didn't just stop those 400 years because the Bible didn't record it, right? And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, uh, we, we get, we're talking about these events that took place in the Old Testament, and we read the stories and, and the scriptures and the prophecies and the things like that, and then we just go kind of move on. And, and we take um, the events that took place in Scripture that we forget there was a whole lot of life outside of what's recorded in the Bible going on. There was a whole lot of history all over the globe, obviously there in Israel, in the Mediterranean Rim, um, but all the way up into Greece and to Rome, all the way out to the east in China, to the north in England, right? There was, there was people out and about across this world, and that's what Jesus was talking about, the uttermost parts of the earth, because people were there. And we have history books beyond the scriptures to remind us what was going on in the world at the time that God's story was unfolding in our Bible. Because that's what this is. This, this book is just God's story in the history of mankind and how God was introduced and how God created and, and eventually how Jesus came and why he came to earth. So God's story was unfolding while all this other stuff was unfolding as well. And that's true today. God's story is still unfolding today. And we don't have 
um, new scriptures. There's not a sequel to the Bible because it's timeless and it's timely. We don't need another sequel. We don't need more. We have everything we need. But history is still happening and God is still working even though it's not written down. We are testimonies to that, right? We all have those stories that we can share of God working in our lives. So let's take a minute, maybe have a little history lesson, um, and unpack the timeline of history during those silent years. But let's, let's back up even further from that. So remember, B.C. works backwards. So in 975, we're working backwards to zero. 975 B.C., the kingdom of Israel divides. God's people, God's chosen people, it divides into two separate kingdoms because they couldn't get along. We have the glory years of David and Solomon, and the temple is built, and and then from there it just kind of starts to spiral down. And in 975 B.C., the north and the south kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, were uh, split up. And the kingdom of Israel, it only lasted about another hundred years before the Assyrians took them out. And there was no more kingdom of Israel. There was just one kingdom. And then 400 and some years later, in 586 B.C., a a new king from Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. Does that name sound familiar to you? Um, King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem, and the Hebrew people, God's chosen people, ceased to exist as a nation in 586 B.C. And they were scattered. They were killed. They were hauled off to Babylon to be slaves by King Nebuchadnezzar. And we can read back in Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego, and those, those stories are all recorded for us, and, but life was still happening. And for 140 years, these, uh, these people were slaves. They were remained in hiding. Not all of them went into captivity, but they all did go into hiding for fear that they might be carted off as well. So for 140-some years, um, they, they were slaves. And in 445 B.C., Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes and says, Can I rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And for no reason all other than God was working, he allowed it. And Nehemiah goes back, and he rebuilds the wall. It only takes him 52 days, even amidst great uh, competition from Sam Ballot and great adversity from people uh, within their ranks and, without, and from outside. And the, ball, the walls are rebuilt, and the Hebrew people returned to their home. They came out of hiding. They came back. And then in 430 B.C., after about 100 years of living again in Jerusalem, the, book, the, the last book of the Bible, Malachi, in 430 B.C. is completed. Basically, all 39 books are wrapped up, of the Old Testament are wrapped up by 430 B.C. After years of living uh, their life like normal again in Jerusalem. And it ends... In, in the Old Testament, but there's really no resolve in the final words. Here are some of the final words from Malachi that, uh, that he shares. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence, in, in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. 
On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasure, my treasured possession, and I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son and who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. That would seem like that's not a bad place to end right there, right? That's the end of verse 3. But that's not where he stops. He goes on to write six more verses. And we'll, in, in verse 4, chapter 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the decrees, the laws uh, that I gave him on, at Horeb for all of Israel. So it's just another reminder from God saying, hey, remember the law. Do these things, and let's have a right relationship. Let's be together. And then he, then he goes on that he will return, turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The end. That's, there's, there's, that's kind of an odd ending, Right? Does it seem like there's more to that story? It doesn't sound like the end to me, but that's, that's what they had. That's for centuries. That's what people had to go from because they didn't have the ability like we do. What do we do? From, from here, as we read Malachi 4, 6, and with I will come and strike the land with the total destruction, what do we do? We just turn the page, and there it all is. The story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we just go from one to the next like that. We just turn the page. It's a little more complicated than that, though, right? We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But during this 400 years of silence that God um, that God had between um, the Israelites going back to Jerusalem and Jesus' birth, there are some pretty notable and influential people in history. And uh, let's talk about them for just a second. Hippocrates. What did he do? Do we remember? Anybody know? They're 4th century B.C. Hippocrates is the father of modern medicine. When doctors become doctors, they take the Hippocratic Oath, Right? And he changed how people were cared for medically, and the practices are still used today, thousands of years later. Uh, Socrates, any Bill and Ted Excellent Adventures people here? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all influential thinkers and educators and philosophers, and they taught and they guided the early youth of that time. Julius Caesar became the king. He was the first of the Caesars, takes rule, and then he gets assassinated, right, uh, the, by those that are close to him. E tu brute, remember that from English class when you read Shakespeare? And then in 37 B.C., we, we are introduced to King Herod. And that sounds familiar because when we turn the page, Herod shows up in our New Testament. But he becomes the king of Judea and becomes a pivotal part of Jesus' story. But one person in those silent years, excuse me, um, one person in those silent years was really pivotal to showing how God can work even amidst his silence. And in the advancement of the gospel, even though there was not much 
um, going on in, in the people of God. And it's just one more reason that God can work even though he's silent. But in 359 B.C., not long after the Israelites got back to, um, to, to, to Jerusalem, Philip II, he was the king uh, of the Greek kingdom of Macedon, Macedonia. And he was a strong king known for being a great military leader. Uh, however, oh, uh, he was a family man. He had a, had a nice wife. He had two kids, a, a boy and a girl. And um, he went to a wedding and he was assassinated. So just that usually doesn't happen when we go to weddings. Maybe he wasn't uh, uh, invited and he just crashed. I don't know. But he was assassinated in 336 B.C., and because of this death, his son, Alex, takes over as king of Macedonia. And Alex is just 20 years old. He's 20 years old. But he was a student of Aristotle, who we talked about before, uh, um, between the ages of 12 and 18. So he, he was well-educated. He, he watched his dad be a great military leader. And at 20 years old, he takes over as king, and he rules for just 13 years. He dies at the age of 33. But in those 13 years, as, as the reign, uh, his kingdom reigned, Alexander the Great literally conquered the world. He took over more land and more armies than any other king, kingdom and army recorded in history. At least as far as the world they understood it, right? So um, because of the vast number of cultures um, and lands that he conquered... He thought it was a very important, uh, he made this decision that I want everyone to speak one language. Because I, when I make a decree, or we make a law, or we need to tell them what they're doing, we want them never to lose anything in translation. We don't want to, because uh, we don't know their language, and they don't know ours, we're all going to speak one language. And so he made the decree, and the common language became Koinia, Koinia Greek, which is the, the, the same translation that our Bibles back then, our Bibles today, were translated from. So the gospel was being promoted by a king who not necessarily was a follower of Jesus, but because of his work and the things that he, the decisions he made um, in the early 300 BCs, the Torah was published, the writings of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, they were all translated into this common language for all to read. Now, it wasn't as simple as just picking up our phone and reading it. They had to go to a temple and have it read, and they had to have a copy of it by then, and it took time to write all that down, right? So, um, so it took some time. And then in um, 200 B.C., or right around there, the Septuagint, which is the completion of all 39 books of the Bible, came uh, into print. And because God was working in his silence, his word was made available literally to the world as we knew it. And a large part of our scriptures today came from that. So with this great opportunity to have uh, the Old Testament Scripture available, they didn't just uh, let go, they didn't get just to turn the page. They waited for years and years and years to be able to hear the words of God. And life in the world it didn't stop in those 400 plus years either, uh, outside of the Christian world. And neither does God as he directs his followers. So God didn't just take this break, 
like a 400-year vacation. He didn't do that. He was still working. He didn't leave his people. He just wasn't talking. He wasn't telling them. And, and the people were waiting, much like you had to wait today. Not that I'm the voice of God, but you had to wait just like his people had to wait. The Hebrew people, they were back in Jerusalem when Nehemiah built the walls, right? So they got to come home. And they were in a place that God lived in the temple. They rebuilt the temple and they served and they worshiped. And this, in, their, in this return, in their minds, was just, hey, we're going back to the way it was. They're returning to life as they knew it before captivity, or at least how they would have known it to be when their parents and grandparents passed it down. They might not even have known anything because it was 140 years of captivity. So they were anticipating a word from God. And they were anticipating a move from God like they had heard about from generations before, like they could read about now in, in the Old Testament Scripture and how God delivered their people, their ancestors from Egypt and captivity and the whole story of grace that we've talked about recently. But they had to wait. They had to wait a while, 400 years to be specific. They had to wait for the advent of the Messiah they had to wait 400 years to turn the page. And the one described by Isaiah, um, the prophet, just three, it was 300 years before they even take out of captivity. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. So they knew that the Messiah was coming. And for years and years, they waited. They waited and they listened. And they looked for a sign from God. They waited for the person that God spoke about through the, God, through the person that God spoke through. Isaiah tells them that the Messiah will come. And they, they had uh, God, the, this hope that, the, that God, after being restored to them in Jerusalem, they just waited and waited on that hope. That, it would, that, it would, that he would come. And because that's how it has always been. That's, how, that's what they were taught to do. That's what they knew. So the arrival of the Messiah to earth would completely change everything that, uh, and, and the, from the way that it's always been. And we know that about Jesus. When Jesus came and when he started his ministry, he did it way different than anything that people had ever seen. And he talked in a different way than anyone had ever talked. But then the page was turned, and we flip the page to Matthew chapter 1, and um, we read the entire genealogy of Jesus, and we're not going to do that today. You're welcome. Uh, but I have done that before um, here. But this is basically Matthew telling us in the first 17 verses previously on the story of grace, previously in God's story, this is how Jesus got here, all the way from Abraham to Isaac. And then he goes on to say, And this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in, in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, the, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And hope was restored, and the wait was over. The Messiah was here. And it was worth the wait. Amen? God is always working in our world. And working on this day when we're focusing on the hope of, of Christmas time. He's working to bring hope into our lives. The birth of Jesus is so significant in our world, inside of church and outside of church. It's not, it's not secular. It's not Christian. It's just what God is. It's significant because he created us, and it's why he came. Our, his purpose for coming was for us. But imagine waiting for it for 400 years. Imagine not being able just to flip the page, because we can do that now. And we know that Jesus is the Messiah, and we have all of his, the, the things that are recorded in the Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus. And we know that 33 years after his birth, he began to minister to people and teach and disciple people. And we know that hope arrived in that manger. But on that Friday afternoon, 33 years later, hope was gone. The Messiah that they had hoped for was gone and buried in a tomb. But we know, because we can turn the page, we know that hope returned forever on Resurrection Sunday. The season of Advent is a season of hope, and that's what we focus on today. For 400 years, the Israelite people had hope. Do you hope for anything that long? Do you have the patience and the willingness to wait it out and wait on God to, uh, to meet God wherever He wants to interact with you? Remember, He wants to be known by us. He's seeking us. But sometimes we just have to wait. So it's a season of hope. It's a season of purpose. Why Jesus came. What was the purpose? What was the reason? It's a season of grace. Grace came to earth. And it's a season of love. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at these things. The purpose for Jesus coming. And we'll look at it through the lens of both grace and love. And hope. And as we, uh, as we wait during this Advent season, uh, let's remember a few things. That the hope of Christ that came, it, it was a hope that broke a 400-year silence. It's something that was uh, eagerly anticipated. And remember, Advent is a time of preparation and of anticipation. And they, they waited and they anticipated. They were on the edge of their seats. They prepared for the Messiah for 400 years. 
It was a hope that brought Messiah to the earth. God in a body. And he came to dwell among us even though he created us. He was there before the world began. And it's a hope that because of Jesus' birth, the world would be saved through him. A hope that's alive today and that guides our steps and that, that takes us along. And we, we can be thankful that because of the hope we have in Jesus, we can be with him for eternity in heaven when he comes back. Another advent, the second coming of Christ. So we have hope today. We have the ability to know because of God's word and that we can turn the page and read what God is going to do that we have that hope and we should rest in it today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that you provide in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, be with us as we learn to be patient and live in your timing. Your timing over the course of Scripture um, is hard to, to comprehend sometimes because we do get to turn the page. And we don't know how much time it took in between different, um, different things that happened in Scripture unless it specifically tells us. But we know that for 400 years, God, you just were preparing people silently that you were working in people's lives, even in those that uh, didn't necessarily follow you and didn't necessarily claim you as their Savior. God, you still worked through them. And because of it, our Bibles were translated into a, a, a language that we can all comprehend today. And so, God, we, we're thankful for waiting. And in this time where Christmas is still basically a month away, as we eagerly anticipate that day and celebrating your birth, Father, that you remind us that it's okay to wait, that you remind us that we have hope in you, and a hope takes some time. And Father, we just give this time to you today. We pray that you'll go with us this week as we um, celebrate your advent uh, and your arrival, that we don't take it for granted, that we don't secularize it that we don't commercialize it but father that we remember day after day the purpose for your arrival here on earth lord we love you we're thankful for a great time of worship today go with us today as we uh, eat lunch and have a great time together and and as we decorate your house for uh, christmas time and as we go about our weeks and our afternoon today just give us safety and peace in our hearts today, and we love you so much. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. It's been a great day to worship. Don't forget, head on over. We'll have some uh, Christmas dinner, and then we'll come back over, those who are able to stay, to decorate our church. Sound good? All right, well, God bless. Have a great afternoon. If you can't uh, stay with us, that's fine, but we'll, we'll eat your share, okay? God bless. Have a great day.